Well, um, kia ora te whaurikarakia. Welcome along, and it's so great to see so many beautiful faces in the congregation today. Uh, if I've never had the pleasure of meeting you before, uh, my name is Kyron, and what an honour it is to be asked to share this morning. Just before I uh, get into my message, I've just been praying recently as our church is kind of on a journey um, of what the next steps are. I've really just been praying for the church, and I felt God just remind me how many uh, incredible individuals and families we have in this church, people who are so um, sacrificial. And so I just kind of want to point out two groups of those people um, today. The first one, which uh, we've talked a lot about, is the building team and all those who have been involved in the building. Um, This has taken blood, sweat and tears and so much time and effort uh, for these individuals, but not only these individuals, but also their families, um, just the sacrifices that they have made to allow the individuals to use their gifts and talents. Um, So I just want to say that your work has not gone unnoticed, even though we don't often see the building. Um, When we get there, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible building and that it's going to be such an asset to the community. And also the second group of people that I want to um, just mention is the incredible team who week after week set up this place. Um, The tea and coffee, the worship team, AV, sound. A lot of what goes on, we don't actually see. We just rock up and get to enjoy the fruits of that, Um, come into this space and just connect with God. But also, your work has not gone unnoticed. I was wondering if we could just maybe give those people a round of applause. Brilliant. So as a church, uh, we've been in an Advent series for the last month, uh, focusing on the real reason behind Christmas. Um, So often at this time of year, we can get caught up in the busyness and the hustle and bustle as we plan what we're going to have for Christmas lunch and what presents we have to buy for different people. And often work can get quite stressful at this time as we have to meet deadlines and whatnot. And whilst those things are great, you know, having people around for lunch, buying presents for loved ones, The real reason for Christmas runs a lot deeper than those material and temporary things. Um, And as we unpack this series, what I've really enjoyed is that it hasn't just been words, it's actually put action to these. In the very first week, Colin talked about hope and patience and about that waiting for Advent and how in life we often are so impatient. And then last week, what a beautiful time we had as we all just unpacked joy and what brought us joy. It was so encouraging to look around the congregation and just see so many different individuals smiling and laughing as they, as they talked about and shared what brought them joy. You know, we had everything from motorbikes to Mariella cutting Johan's hair to moments with loved ones. It was just a beautiful time to see people talking about what gives them joy. And today is the final installment of the series, I and mean, if you haven't gathered by what we've already done in the service. Today we're focusing on love, um, specifically God's love, and I'm going to speak to it through the lens of Zephaniah 3.17. But as part of this series, um, we've been looking at a series of paintings by Jan Hayes, an Australian um, painter who's painted modern-day Advent scenes in the context of Townsville in Australia. Um, And so today, as you can see behind me, is the last instalment in this And I'll be uh, completely honest with you, I am no art connoisseur, um, so don't take everything that I say too uh, seriously. But in looking at this painting, the first thing that really stood out to me was just a sense of unpreparedness. Um, We see Jesus there wrapped in some handy towels, still attached to the dispenser. Mary's got no shoes on. It's almost like they just weren't ready for what was about to happen. Um, We see behind them a big shell, 
If I was to paint this, I probably would have painted a BP petrol station. Um, I like the Wild Bean Cafe. But here, here uh, Jan has chosen to paint a Shell petrol station. And actually, as Colin pointed out, a shell in those times is an ancient symbol of a journey or a pilgrimage, um, just emphasizing the point that Mary and Joseph were on a journey here. Um, down the bottom here, we have a little kid dressed as an angel holding the lilies. Um, as Colin has pointed out in weeks gone by, lilies are a symbol of uh, holiness. And here I like the fact that it paints the kid as the holy one here, um, emphasizing the point that Jesus is the saviour. You can't really see it, um, it's been cut off, but down the bottom there's a big arrow pointing the way, um, pointing to the holy kid as well, to basically say, you know, this kid is the holy one. Um, Mary, looking good for having just given birth. You may not be able to see it, but she is holding a baguette and a give blood bag, um, just emphasising the purpose of this kid and talking about communion, which we will get to um, later on. Second to last point, um, which I picked up, was the three wise men, or the three working men in this case, wearing their overalls. Um, this one crouching down here, he's holding a light, just emphasising that Jesus is the light. Um, the one to his left is holding a fuel can, just to emphasise the fact that Jesus is the one who sustains us on our journey. And then the last one is holding quite a painful tool, probably not something you'd want to see the dentist pull out when you're sitting in the chair. Um, and this is probably just to emphasize the fact of the painful journey and death that Jesus would die. And then the very last part um, is on the roof, right up the very top, as Jan has done in her other paintings. She's painted a bird here to represent the Holy Spirit. Um, and what I like about this one is this bird is an ibis. And if you do a bit of a Google search on an ibis, you'll find out that they are very not liked in Australia, um, much in the same category we put magpies. So I find it interesting that she chose to, choose, uh, chose to paint such a hated bird as the Holy Spirit, maybe a wee reflection on society in her eyes. But as I mentioned, uh, we're up to the last instalment in our Advent series, today looking at love. And when Colin first sent me the email asking if I would preach on this, it just said, 20th of December, love, Zephaniah 3.17. And the first thing that sort of came to my mind, maybe it's just a product of being a young adult growing up in church, but I thought of the five love languages. If you want to chuck them up there, Rachel, thank you. Um, last term at youth group, we looked at the love languages as part of our Just Asking for a Friend relationship series. Um, and often in church circles, this is a question that people ask you when they're getting to know you, what your love languages are. Just so they know how to encourage you um, and make you feel loved in special circumstances. For me, um, I like to think of myself as a pretty low-maintenance guy. And so acts of service and gifts are quite low uh, on my list, I don't really feel too much love from those. Uh, so if you were planning on buying me a Christmas present, I'm sorry, I'm very hard to buy for. <laughs> um, third, oh, these, by the way, this is my list of uh, love languages from first to last, if you didn't know. Um, third on my list is quality time. There's just something about spending time in the presence of loved ones. Joy, it's an incredible time. Um, point number two, physical touch. I have three brothers, two of which live in Wellington. And one of the first things I always do when I see my brothers when they come home um, is just give them a hug. There's something about being embraced and embracing someone where you feel loved. But by far, my top love language is words of affirmation. Uh, if anyone's been to my house, which is probably not a lot of you, uh, on my mirror in my bedroom, I have different cards and letters and notes that people have written me, at least the ones that say nice things about me. Um, LAUGHTER 
And they just remind me of different um, times where I've felt loved. In my car, I have um, two cards on my dashboard from special people uh, who have just, just I, need, I don't even need to read what's in the cards to just be reminded and taken back to the times when I did read those cards and how loved I felt in those moments. And so Zephaniah 3.17, uh, our key verse today, here we have five words of affirmation from God that he speaks over us. Uh, so they're up there. I'm probably not going out on much of a limb here this morning to say I don't think many of us would have spent any time in Zephaniah uh, in our quiet times this week. Uh, so if you haven't, I will help you. Zephaniah is a minor prophet, so he is found in the Old Testament, uh, somewhere between Habakkuk and Haggai. So if you open your Bibles and you find yourself in a book starting with the letter H, you're pretty much there, just a few pages back or forth. Uh, if you get to Zechariah, the other book starting with Z, you've gone too far. Let's take a U-turn, turn back a few chapters and you'll find yourself there. Now, Zephaniah was from a royal family. Uh, most theologians believe that he existed or administered uh, sometime between about 640 and 610 BC, so just, just over 600 years before Christ came to earth. And his sole purpose in his ministry was to minister to the nation of Israel. Uh, he had one very simple job. You see, the nation of Israel had uh, wandered. They had got caught up in uh, idolatry, not adultery, maybe adultery, um, greed, lust, all these sort of things. And so Zephaniah's ministry was very simple. He just came to warn them of what would happen if they carried on living that life. Uh, so we get this sort of urgency in his book. It's quite a short book, only three chapters, but out of any book in the Bible, it mentions the word, the day of the Lord, the most, kind of just telling them about the judgment that was to come. And as we get further and further into uh, the book of Zephaniah, right at the end, he kind of changes his tune, and rather than talking about what's going to happen if they carry on living that life, uh, he turns to talking about God's love and how much he loves them. And so that's where I want to pick it up today. Zephaniah 3.17 where Zephaniah reminds the Israelites of God's goodness and his love. Five short promises, five words of affirmation found in Zephaniah 3.17. And there they are up on the screen. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He'll take great delight in you. He will still you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. And so what I thought we'd do this morning uh, for this message is we're just in unpack all those points one by one and dig a bit deeper into God's love and how he feels about us. So if you're up for that, can I invite you to turn to Zephaniah 3.17. And point number one, the Lord your God is with you. What a timely reminder for this year and this season that we find ourselves in. So often life can get quite hectic and busy and we get caught up in the hustle and bustle. And often in those times, uh, we fail to connect with God because other things take our priority. But it's just such a beautiful reminder that no matter what life looks like, God is still present in that. No matter how chaotic or confusing life is, God is still present in that. We have that promise in Zephaniah. Isaiah 41.10 puts it like this. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am the Lord your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a sense of intimacy in that picture. God holding us with his righteous right hand. There's comfort in that, and it's just like he's right there holding us and watching us. I take a lot of comfort in that, knowing that God is near in all seasons, no matter what life 
looks like. Point number two, he is a mighty warrior who saves. Deuteronomy 24 puts it like this. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. In the very first week of this series, Colin was talking about hope and patience. And he talked about the story of Gideon. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Gideon, uh, Judges 6.12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord your God is with you, a mighty warrior. You see, Gideon was about to head into battle uh, to take down the Midianite army. The Midianite army was quite a um, scary, reputable army. They were quite strong. And Gideon was quite severely outnumbered. Um, but the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and then God did an incredible thing. He carried on reducing Gideon's army size down until it got to about 300 in number, a size that they couldn't defeat the Midianite army by themselves. But here we see God's promise that he will deliver the victory for them. And plot twist, spoiler alert, God comes through in that promise. All glory to God in that situation. He is mighty to save. Point number one, the Lord your God is with you, but not only is he with you, he is with you in the battle and he is fighting on your behalf. Take comfort in that today. Point number three, he'll take great delight in you. Whenever the Bible mentions something multiple times, it's worth paying attention to. And we see here in point number three and point number five, the same Hebrew word is used to describe how God feels about us. The word means to feel love, to joy, to overflow with joy. Recently, I went to a wedding, um, and if you've ever been to a wedding, there's this classic moment where the person who's officiating the wedding asks everyone to stand up, and everyone kind of does this sideways stance so they can look at the groom and then look at the door where the bride is going to walk through. And one by one, the bridesmaids walk down the aisle, and you just start to feel the emotion building until the big moment where the bride appears and you just almost feel the atmosphere shift in the room as the groom and the bride lock eyes for the first time. There's this just overwhelming love and joy. God looks at us the same way. And when he looks at us like a groom looks at his bride, he feels that same level of joy and love for us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't feel worthy of receiving that type of love. I feel like I mess up, and how could God ever love me in those situations? And if you feel like that, allow me to unpack that a little bit more in point five. But for now, take delight in the fact that God loves you and he rejoices over you. Like a groom looking at his bride, so too does God look at you and smile. Point number four, he will quiet you with his love. The truth of the matter here is that we were designed by God for God to be in relationship with God. I'll say that again. We were designed by God for God to be in relationship with God. That is our purpose. That is our identity. And when Zephaniah was saying this to the Israelites, essentially what he was saying, remember the Israelites were caught up in idolatry, worshipping different idols. He was saying the answers you're searching for, you know, the, 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 the answers you're searching for, what you're looking for, cannot be found in these idols. Yes, they may provide you temporary relief or pleasure, but long-term, these are not going to sustain you. That God-shaped hole that you're searching to, to uh, fill, you cannot find it in these idols. Only when you fully come into your identity and existence as a child of God will you know your purpose. Well, that is where you will find rest. You were not created for these idols, but by God, for God, that you would encounter him 
through Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26.3 says it like this, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. Peace comes from the Lord. And in a year that has been so chaotic and confusing and often hasn't gone the way that we've planned, the people who I have talked to, who I've seen have the most joy, are the people who have managed to abide in Christ and stay fixed and steadfast on him. To say, despite what I see in the world, despite reading the news and all the chaos that is happening, God, I still believe that you are good, and I still believe you are on the throne. You are still working. And there's a level of peace that flows from that. John 16.33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. There's a sort of level of peace. Yes, we do face trial. Yes, we do face hard times. But take heart that God has overcome that, and may you know the peace that comes from God. He is still on the throne, and he still has the victory. And God sees it right there. Our identity is to dwell in him, to abide in him. It's what we're designed to do, and it's where we find our peace. Point number five, fifth and final, he will rejoice over you with singing. As I said before, the same Hebrew word is used here to talk about how God loves us. It's it's an emotive word. It carries sort of passion. It's to celebrate, to radiate joy, to look at something and smile like a father looking at their newborn child for the first time. It kind of brings this overwhelming joy. God takes great delight in his creation Not because we are perfect people who hit the mark every time, but because he designed us to be his children. And often I think we disqualify ourselves from the love of God because we put barriers in the way. We say we've messed up one too many times. We don't deserve that. But the truth of the matter here is God is a loving God. He's willing to do it. We talked about it before in that verse that Colin read. Zephaniah 3.15, the Lord your God has taken away the judgment. Last time I spoke, I talked about uh, John 8, Jesus declaring he is the light of the world. And this statement comes after a woman is caught red-handed in the act of adultery. In one of her darkest times, Jesus turns around and says, I am the light of the world. Go no more in sin. He doesn't say this because she's innocent or not guilty. He says this to her because she is guilty, but her identity is to be in Christ. And he realizes that with sin, we are not worthy of that. But Christ came to die on the cross so that that sin would go on his shoulders and that we could approach God again. God loves us not because we are perfect, but because we are fragile and we need him. And so our guilt and shame shouldn't be a deterrent for God's love. In fact, it shouldn't push us further away from God. If anything, our our fragility should push us and propel us towards God as we realize deeper our need for him. So often as children of God, we're taught to take delight in the Lord. But here God flips the script. He looks at us and says, I delight in you, my child. I absolutely love the story of the prodigal son. You know, a son who's gone off the rails, he's walked away, And he finds himself in this moment where he thinks, I am not worthy of my father's love. He's laying in a pen and he's saying, if only I can get home. I don't care what my father has to say. I don't care how angry he is. Anything has to be better than where I find myself right now. So he does a very brave thing. He decides to pack up his gear and head home, thinking the whole time that he's going to be extremely judged and disappointing his father. Yet when he gets home, he encounters something quite different. 
You see, the whole time the son was away, the father every day was just sitting out the front, eyes fixed on the horizon, waiting for his son to pop over. And the very moment that he sees his son coming home, he runs up, embraces him, and said, I am so glad you are here. You were once lost, but now you have been found. I'm not angry. In fact, I'm going to throw a party. I rejoice the fact that you are now home. Church, that is our God, the God who rejoices over his children coming home, the God who takes great delight in us. And that is the good news of the message of Christmas, that Jesus came to this earth not only to show us how to live as humans, but to die the death so that we once again would have access to the love of the Father. And so I want to put an invitation out there as Colin comes up to do communion first. I just want us, when we're taking communion, just to reflect on where we are in relation to God's love. Perhaps we've drifted a little bit or a lot away from it, but the invitation is there today. Come back to the Father's arms. Once again, know his love for you. Take comfort in the fact that he loves you and rejoices over you. Whatever the storms in life you may encounter, take heart that God is with you He is walking with you. He loves you, and you are designed to be once again in his arms, to dwell in him. Let's pray and Colin come up and do communion. Father God, thank you that you are a relational God. You are a God of love, uh, and you long for your children to be in relationship with you. God, no matter how far we've drifted, whether we are near or far, may we know your love today, and may we be able to come back into your arms again. May we know your sweet embrace again. And Father, when you know your love for this season, may we fix our focus on the core message of Christmas, that you sent your son Jesus to earth to die a death so that once again we would not carry the weight, but the weight of sin would be upon the, on the shoulders of Christ. And may we know the love that flows from that, that perfect picture of love. Amen.